your wife to switch it up because you did last week. Please have your wife open us up in prayer. Okay. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to this place and having an opportunity to learn from Pastor Joe that we can learn more to share your gospel and reach the lost, Lord. Please bless this class and give us lots of knowledge, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just want to share once again, it was totally my fault that uh, we did not have pre-class hangout. And of all days, today was the day because I was so excited about uh, what we have going on. So please forgive me. I went to the wrong class and I see Daryl. Yeah, he was just writing me. And I was like, man, you guys must be leaving me hanging. Where's everybody at? Okay. Well, let's get into the class. Let's uh, make sure we have plenty of time to discuss our um, our uh, our notes. It's going to be a great class. Today is really where it starts to meet. Uh, the rubber meets the road. It's where we can begin to really deal with argumentation, which I know uh, practical usage, which I know most of you have been really excited about doing. I'm going to read the scripture, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Uh, matter of fact, why don't I have uh, Rachel do that? R- Rachel, would you read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, please? Sure. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. Thank you. Now today, we get into the goodies. It is time to start destroying arguments and every pretension. Woo! (laughs) This is it. Uh, I actually departed a little bit from the book now because this is where I feel the most comfortable. I just wanted to make sure I had given you guys a good foundation. Uh, Just like in today's lesson, I will be giving you a lot more of the details in passing, but you can go over those things in passing as you would like. But what I'm going to be focusing on now is primarily the step-by-step practical application of being a presuppositional apologist. So once again, this is for our elders and deacons. It's our 301 class. It's an ongoing training for our leaders in the church. They are already making disciples leading life groups. And so we really want to make this more than just head knowledge. We want to make it practical Uh, heart and feet knowledge, things to have in your heart and act out in your daily life. So what he starts off with is kind of the foundation of modern philosophy, or or at least the the main figures that have popped up in the last couple hundred years. And like I said, I'm just giving this in passing, because this can go on and on and on and on. And as you will see, when we have discussions with people on the streets or in our life. They may sometimes want to get all up into the history of all of this, but their arguments are going to fall the same. Anytime they divert from the Christian worldview, they're going to get rocked, okay? It's like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face, you know? And so everybody can have their own plan. They can say, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to come at the Christian like this and like this. But if you just know how to stand on your ground, if you know the original, you can spot the forfeit and uh, the, uh, the counterfeit, rather, and you'll have them forfeit their argument. So what he basically does is he, he talks about David Hume and Immanuel Kant, Immanuel Kant. 
And these are the two main uh, positions that happened in philosophy starting in the 1700s. And I got this from Wikipedia once again, just a real easy uh, place to share information so you guys can check it out. But David Hume was a Scottish philosopher, historian, economist, essayist, essayist, essayist. There we go. He wrote essays, who is best known today for his highly influential system of philosophical empiricism, skepticism, and naturalism. Lord help me. And basically what he believed was, unless you can prove it naturally, it doesn't exist. It's not true. So he was a skeptic. I don't believe in a God because I can't put him under a microscope or see him with a telescope. I am a naturalist. I he was saying, I only believe in what is in nature. Empiricism is, the, is the, basically the practice of using science to find knowledge or what you would get from your sensory experience, your five senses. And so it seems like it's really smart to say, well, I'm only going to believe what I can see. Well, the problem is when you just said, I'm only going to believe what I can see, can you see that? So your philosophy to say, I'm only going to believe in what I can see is not a, a thing you can test with your five senses. So it's itself a, a defeating argument. Now, Manuel Kant was kind of a, a Christian, but not really, you know, he kind of had Christian ideas. But what he came up with, well, let me just read what he was. He was a German philosopher who is a central figure in modern philosophy, Kant. Um, Kant, rather, argued that the human mind creates the structure of human experience and that reason is the source of morality. Aesthetics arise from a faculty of disinterested judgment, that space and times are forms of our sensibility, and that the world as it is in itself is independent of our concepts of it. Kant took himself to have effected a Copernium revolution in philosophy akin to Copernicus's reversal of the age-old belief that the sun revolved around the earth. His, his beliefs continue to have a major influence on contemporary philosophy, especially in the fields of metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, political theory, and aesthetics. Basically, he started a revolution to say that our morality and all of these things come from our mind and things that are metaphysical, things that we may not be able to test with our senses. Now, he didn't always attribute these things to the Christian God. That's why I say it's not really sure uh, if he was a Christian or not or where he held himself in those regards. You can study him. Uh, matter of fact, I could probably just pull it up now and see uh, what he thought about his religious beliefs just to get a little bit more on that. I mean, I don't, I mean, for me to say I know about these guys would just be obviously not true. I'm learning in the book, just like you guys. I've heard about them for quite some time. And so when they come up, I kind of understand the basis, the basics of what they're talking about, but I haven't really studied a whole lot of them. Here's what he really brought about these two major things, the epistemology of transcendental idealism which basically means that the world comes from mind and transcendental means that the mind is not in the natural world. So once I zoomed in on that, I lost it. So that was one of the big things And epistemology is how we gain knowledge. And then the second thing was a moral philosophy of the autonomy of practical reason. Um, and so these teachings place the active rational human subject at the center of cognitive and moral worlds. 
Kant argued that the rational order of the world as known by science was not just the accidental accumulation of sense perceptions. So you can see he's basically pointing towards a transcendental mind, a mind beyond space and time, a supernatural mind. And so how did he feel about God? With regard to morality, Kant argued that the source of the good lies not in anything outside the human subject, either in nature or given by God, but rather only the good will itself. So here he denies that we needed God to be good, and he might have said that too with reason, that we could do it without God. But I don't think um, that he was a disbeliever in God. Let me see um, if I can find anything else. Anybody want to put up in the link, was Kant a Christian or what uh, personal legacy? He did have somewhat of a Christian belief. Let me see. Was Kant a Christian? And so, like I said, if you want to learn something, teach it. So I'm learning this with you. And once we get done with this, we're, we're kind of past him. Okay. Um, Manuel Kant. Okay, so Kant's philosophy of religion. Here we go. Let's see. Throughout his career, Kant engaged many of the major issues that contemporary philosopher groups together on the philosophy of religion. Kant was interested. He, he thus sought to lo locate the concept of God within a systematically ordered set of preset uh, of a philosophical Principles, okay, arguments for the existence of God. So it looks like he believed in God, um, but I don't know if he was a Christian, okay? So let's put it like that. Who knows? The bottom line is he denied some of the things the Bible teaches, so we're not going to go all that, you know, serious into what he really taught. But the major difference between them is that Hume believed you couldn't know anything unless it could be proven with logic and science, other words, evidence. And so that's where it comes up as an evidential approach. That's kind of a Hume way of doing things. And Kant taught that you couldn't know anything without first having a properly functioning mind, which would be like a presuppositional approach. And so I also have that here in another article that says their differences. Hume's, and I have this, uh, on our, uh, our link, I linked it on our MPI 301 page. It's on Plato Stanford's page. So Stanford has a lot of good articles on there. So Hume's method of moral philosophy is, is experimental and empirical. That's kind of like where we think of like five senses and science. Kant emphasizes the necessity of grounding morality and a, and a priori principles. And when you hear that phrase, a priori, that is going to come up in logic. That is Latin for the thing prior, uh, a priori, relating to or denoting reasoning or knowledge that proceeds from theoretical deduction rather than observation or experience. So that's a key part of all good philosophy is having um, your presuppositions laid out correctly. And so he believed in grounding morality in a priori principles and fundamental principles. Hume says that reason is properly a slave to the passions, that basically you're an animal of instinct, 
while Kant bases morality in his conception of reason that is practical in itself. Now, that's where we have the difference. It's not practical in itself. Where do we get logic from, Ulysses? As the Christian, where do we say logic begins to make sense and has practical benefits? Where does it come from? Uh, logic will come from, uh, from our faith. Well, no, not in this sense. Think of the primary cause of all logic. Who wants to help him? Rachel? It's God. God, exactly. Now, where do we hear uh, pertaining to God something that sounds almost identical to logic? The logos. Logos, exactly. And that is not a stretch of the words. That's just not like house and mouse. That's literally where logic actually comes from is logos. So if you look at the etymology, etymology of logic, and you'll see that it comes from the Greek word logos. And if you guys can see that there, it comes from the Greek word logos. So that is very key to understanding our difference with Kant is that we do believe that things need to be a priori, that things need to be grounded, that we don't just base knowledge on science, we base it on reason, but uh, re transcendental reasons, things that are non-physical, but where do those come from? That comes from the mind of God. And by the way, I don't know if I announced it, but this is uh, week five, chapter four in our book, The Transcendental Argument. And I think I forgot to mention that. And The Transcendental Argument was made popular by Van Til about 100 years later after the Hume, Kantian feud, and all of those different groups that came out of that. Van Til was a believer in Kant's ideas and then formulated them into a Christian presuppositional argument. So that's why we're going to learn the transcendental argument for God, TAG, because Van Til basically in his height of his career in the 50s and 60s, was taking the best of what Kant was telling us to refute the empiricism, the naturalism, the evidentialism of the unbeliever. We took that and incorporated it into Christian thought, and we saw that there was a lot of truth in that. And then we go back into the book of Acts to the time of Jesus, and we see that this can help us explain what they are doing. So all true philosophy is going to come from God. All true beliefs are going to come from God. So as Hume started to say, you can't believe things without experimenting. It's like, did Jesus teach that? Did Jesus say the only way you can know there's a heaven is if you see it or taste it or smell it with your five senses and do experiments? No, Jesus had a presupposition, a knowledge, a priori, to ground the things that he was saying, and those were based in the divine revelation. Now, the divine revelation for Jesus himself was that he had been there, and yes, he had experienced it, but then we could say the prophets hadn't necessarily been there, but they were getting revelation and had to trust that it was true. And so I was just reading this today in the, in the Gospel of Mark. If you notice with Jesus, and when it's describing him, oftentimes it's saying, I have come, I have come. And that right there already tells you that he is not of this world. He has come from another world 
to reveal to us with further evidence, so there's nothing wrong with evidence, further revelation that the things that the prophets were saying were true, that he is, you know, God has been with us from the beginning. He created us in his image, et cetera. And so now in an age of, uh, you know, relativism, naturalism, where people say we have to approve everything, this is going to be our number one best argument, I believe, to show the unbeliever that if they doubt what we are saying, they have no ground to stand on. So let's get into the tag or the transcendental argument for God. First, we need to be reminded of metaphysics. It's the theory of the fundamental nature of reality. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. Transcendental is a new word, things relating to the spiritual or non-physical. Okay, so metaphysics, we're going to talk about the fundamental nature of reality. Epistemology, we're going to talk about how we know things. And then transcendental, relating to the spiritual, non-physical things. So like logic, mathematics, you know, et cetera. We're, we're going, and, and God would fit into this as well. So we're going to share with them an argument that deals with metaphysics, tells you how you can know everything, and is going to show you a spiritual realm, basically give you proof of that spiritual realm. Now, the three components of a transcendental argument for God, and you're going to learn that there's many of these arguments. There's not just one. Uh, transcendental arguments for God are many. And they have to be sound uh, and based in Scripture, but they'll all kind of have these three things in common. Number one, they're going to give you the presupposition or the reason a priori for logic and rationality. Number two, they're going to give you the foundation for morality and value. So when people are making value statements, they have to come through these arguments. Otherwise, their value statements mean nothing. Their morality means nothing. And the same thing is with science and uniformity of nature. All of these are best, best explained and accounted for in God and specifically the Christian God, because the Christian God is the most logical, rational, moral, valuable scientific unit and, and, and gives an explanation for the uniformity of nature. Our Bible, our scriptures are self-attesting that they come from the God of the universe. And so we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but set all of that to say this. I'm looking at your guys' facial reactions. Okay, here we go. This is today's lesson. And I want to do this for the rest of the class. Uh, you know, when I start getting into Kant and uh, these guys and all of this and that, it's just, it's just so boring to me personally. Some of you may know or love these guys or love the history of it. That's great because, you know, there's some people who like to read novels and there's other people who like to read science fiction. And then there's people who watch CSI. And then there's people who watch the Kardashians, you know. Uh, I'm not going to tell you which one I am. But anyways, you know, you have these people that all have different interests. My interests are not in going back into people 300 years ago, reading their books and trying to figure it all out. Just give me the main points. Let's move forward. So if it's true, if it's true, then it will be true now. OK, here is the transcendental argument from grounding. This comes in your book. And the transcendental argument from grounding basically is you can only exist because of God. 
Okay, now I'm going to go through all of these. Write down if you have any questions after the lecture, and then we'll take them on one at a time. We'll work through them. We'll have some fun, okay? The tag from grounding, transcendental argument from grounding. You can only exist because God exists. Premise one, if God is the transcendental ground of X, he exists. God is the transcendental ground of X, therefore God exists. Sounds pretty simple, right? Well, it may seem like it's too simple. You're already asserting at the beginning there's a God, and then you're trying to prove him at the end. Some people, as we learned at the beginning, call that a circular argument. Yes, it is circular, but it's no more circular than everybody else's starting point for grounding. So are all circular arguments created the same? No. When dealing with ultimate meaning, circular arguments have to be based in something that cannot be defeated. There can be no known defeater. Well, let's see. Is there a defeater for premise one? If God is the transcendental ground of X, he exists. No, I mean, there's no way to defeat. There's nothing illogical about that statement. Now, somebody may say God doesn't exist, so he would not be necessary to ground anything. Then that's what X would mean, anything, right? So they would say God doesn't exist. Well, now the problem you have to answer is why does anything exist instead of nothing? Have fun with that. <laughs> if God is not the reason why everything exists, give me another answer. Now, I was listening to a debate today with Eric Hernandez and Della Hunty, and Eric Hernandez being the Christian. He was rocking this man over the existence of the soul because there's no way you can come against the soul without first acknowledging you have one. And the only way you can have one is if there's the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible explains the soul. It's self-attesting to the truth of the soul. So now somebody says, well, I don't have, and this is what the guy would say, well, I don't have to explain the soul. And just because you think you have an answer and I say, I don't know, doesn't mean you're better. Yes, it does. Think of it like this. This is the argument from Leibniz. If you found a ball in the middle of a forest, and it was the size of a little marble. Would you be right in asking the question, where is, uh, why is there a ball and where did it come from? Absolutely, it would be totally rational to say, where did this marble-sized ball come from? Make the ball bigger, the size of a house. Is it still rational to ask that question? Is it a good question? Should you ask the question? Absolutely. Make the ball the size of a planet. Do, don't we ask those questions about all these planets? Where do they come from? How do they get here? Now make the ball the size of the universe. Does the question go away? No, still a great question to ask. Where did it come from and why is it here? You can only give that answer if you believe in non-physical entities because we're asking the question, where did all physical entities come from? Do you get that? So where did all matter, space, and time come from? Can't be for matter, space, and time because we just asked the question, where did it all come from? Does everybody get that? So when people argue this way and you're in an argument with an atheist, they're going to attack points, right? So th there's not like a trick up our sleeve. We want to give them this. I, I have told the gentleman that's coming to debate with us, you know, to watch the classes, get the argument. So we're not like trying to say, I know something you don't. Now I'm going to throw this argument at you and catch you off guard. That, that's not really like educated debate. You know, you, you don't want to treat people like that. So, you know, you want people to give their best shot. Tell us if God is not the transcendental ground of X, what is? 
If you just say that's not an important question, you've just forfeited the debate. You think everything else has a reason for its existence. So if everything else has a reason for its existence, the 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 bird has a reason for its existence, the uh, the planet Earth, Neptune, all of these things. Why not a reason for all of them combined? Wouldn't that just make sense? If you have a reason for everything in the universe, this is why there's a star. This is why the star burns like this. This is where the, you know, the helium or whatever is burning in stars come from. Okay, blah, 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 blah. well, put all the stars together, put all the black matter together, all the space. What's the grounding of that? What is the reason of that? God is the only explanation. So if God is, in one sense, the only explanation for X, therefore God has to exist. To argue otherwise would mean to argue from non-existence. You would have to say nothing can create something. And if we don't have logical sense to even, you know, say nothing produces nothing, you can't get something from nothing, then why are we even debating? And, and if someone says, well, I don't believe in logic, well, you're not even now being rational. See, the, the Bible says, there, and if you remember, there's a fool that we answer, and then there's a fool we don't answer. If there's a fool that says, well, psh, I don't care, and I don't want to know, okay, shake off your dust, move to the next one. Don't answer a fool according to their folly. Say, I'm just going to pray for you and move on. Okay, you don't want to know, you don't care, you don't think it's important. Well, the kind of fool that you're looking for, and I feel the Holy Spirit on this, I want you to be encouraged. Most people who disbelieve in God or the Christian God are the kind of fool the Bible wants us to address in their folly, lest they think they're wise in their own eyes, because then it opens up their eyes. Just like when we saw at the beginning, when Sai was confronting that rebellious teenager, and he says, I live in the world of I don't know. And then Sai says, do you know you live there? Yes. Well, you can't say you don't know. Okay. The transcendental argument from intelligibility. You can only know things because of God. Let's do this. This is from him, and then I'll give you mine at the end, because I gave you guys some to study during the, uh, the week. Premise one, if anything is intelligible, coherent, or meaningful, God exists. Premise two, something, causality, motion, banana peels, Augustine, is intelligible, coherent, and meaningful. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Now, what's, what, what are... The points that there's only two premises, and it's a logical argument, which means uh, it does its modus ponus correctly. Now, let me just show you just right here, modus ponens, okay? And what that simply means is the rule of logic stating that if a conditional statement, if P, then Q, is accepted, and the antecedent P holds, then the consequent Q may be inferred. An argument using modus ponens, okay? Now, that's where I showed you before. Like, if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then Socrates is mortal. So you can put it in an if-then. You know, you don't always put if-then actually, like writing it out in your arguments. But the point is, if these things line up correctly as premises, the therefore, the then is correct. So there's no inherent... Um, illogical presuppos there's nothing illogical about the structure of our argument here nothing is illogical everything is uh, proceeding correctly the only thing is once again they're going to say is we're arguing in a, in a circle because we're already saying there's a god a possible god at the beginning and then ending with the god at the end and so if you're trying to start with what you're trying to prove that's circular but there's no way around that. I mean, we're talking about the ultimate reason for all intelligibility. 
if someone was to try to give you an argument to disprove circular reasoning, they would already have to believe in an argument against circular reasoning that modus ponens works to even disprove it. So what we're trying to do is show you why logic works in the first place, okay? So if anything is intelligible, God exists. Well, once again, they could say, uh, well, God doesn't have to exist and we could still understand things. Well, then try to tell me how you can understand things without a God. Now, they, they may say evolution. Then what are you going to say? Where did evolution come from? There's not like this, and I always like to say it like this is, you know, there's not this big E, this big V, like on Sesame Street called evolution, walking around telling people things. And then you just, you, you get them back through what we call the, the um, impossible, impossibility of the contrary or the reductio ad absurdum, which is you reduce it to absurdity, the infinite regress, you come to the same place, you can never know anything. Let me just give you an example. Look, if you can look at, I'll, I'll, I'll stop showing this, the video for a second and I'll show myself. If you can look at my hand, if there's not a God that starts off knowledge to begin with, okay, and puts a grounding to everything, how could you ever get to the knowledge you have today? Because watch, it would be an infinite regress. So that means every question you get an answer to, you would have to act, answer another question forever. So how do you know you're here? because I'm thinking that I'm here. How did you know you were thinking that you were here? Because evolution made, made a brain that could think. How did evolution make a brain that could think? Because there was a big bang millions of years ago. How was there a big bang millions of years ago? Because there's a multiverse that bangs out universes. How did a multiverse bang out universes? Because there was another multiverse that banged out universes. And you will have to keep going and going and going. And if that literally was events happening in time, a multiverse to a multiverse to a multiverse, you never stop. You would never be able to answer the question why I'm here. Another way to look at it is, is like this. Let's say you're just trying to get one library book, but you have to go get it from Ulysses. And Ulysses says, I don't have it. I have to go get it from Daryl. Daryl says, I don't have the book you want to borrow. I've got to go get it from Rachel. Rachel says, I don't have it. I've got to go get it from Joe B. Imagine that going on for an infinity. Do you ever get the book? So according to the atheist, if God doesn't ground it, stop it and say, I'm God. I, I'm telling you what's up. This is the answer. I created this. I did this. Here's the revelation. Now go and know things. Can you ever know one thing? Can you ever know what this pin is? No. Okay. So intelligibility uh, obviously is important in the average, average everyday life. And no one lives as an unintelligent person in a sane world, right? In a sane world. Uh, next, the tag argument from the Trinity. Only the triune God of the Bible can be the one true God. Now, notice how this works right here. Premise one, if Jesus rose from the dead, God is triune and known only through the Bible because Jesus affirms the Old Testament. Jesus says he came from the Father. Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. These are accurate uh, trans, uh, re recollections and transmissions of Jesus's words. Premise two, Jesus did rise from the dead. We do have evidence for that. So we're not saying we're all just going to defend these in transcendental ways. We do have physical evidence. A man named Jesus lived and he died. And, that, and, and so we, we fully use evidence whenever we want to. We use evidence in science too, right? But remember, 
we're giving them the reason why science works. We're giving them the reason why these things happen. And so we're telling them why Jesus rise from the dead was because God said he would, and God predicted that he would, okay? Therefore, God is triune and known only through the Bible. Now, let me say this about the impossibility of the contrary, which is important to know whenever you're defending these points. It is a positive argument to show that if someone rejects any of your premises, it leads to absurdity. That is a great way to establish what you're saying. I'll show you and just explain in just a minute, but let me get through this. The impossibility of the contrary in logic, known as reductio ad absurdum, Latin for reduction to absurdity, or argumentum ad absurdum, argument to absurdity, is a form of argument which attempts either to disprove a statement by showing it inevitably leads to a ridiculous, absurd, or impractical conclusion, or to prove one by showing. You're proving a statement by showing that if it were not true, the result would be absurd or impossible. And I got that from Wiki as well, but it's, you know, it's common knowledge. That's what it means. Okay, so let me give you an argument from that, that makes the point from absurdity. Now, I've already showed you a few, but I'm just going to give you one real quick. If I said to you, my parents had no children that lived, how would you disprove that statement? You would disprove it by showing that it's absurd. There's no way for you to be here without parents. You came here from parents, and now for you to say that your parents had no children that lived, that is absurd. So there is no way for us to have any discussion with a person like me if I'm making claims like that without you showing them how absurd it is to begin with because they won't admit that they have parents. Let me give you another real simple one. If I said to you, I don't know a word of English. I don't know any words in English. I don't even know one word in English. Is that true or is that absurd? That's absurd. That's ridiculous. It's impractical. I just, I'm speaking to you in English, right? So when you start arguing with people in this way, what you're wanting to do is show them that if they deny these points, and not everything you do is going to be an effective tag argument, you got to form them right. You just can't throw up everything on the board. But if you're good with scripture and you know just a little bit about modus ponens, how to do a good if then then, you can get good at it, you know, and you can do it with all scripture. And anytime they come against you, you can reduce their. Uh, you can reduce their objection to absurdity, okay? So let me give you an example of this. If one were to deny a well-formed tag, a transcendental argument for God, they would be essentially denying logic, morality, and science, and thus casting the debate and their existence into meaninglessness. So if we go back to the top here, and says, and say, if anything is intelligible, God exists. And if they say, no, things can be intelligible without God existing. Well, show me how things can be intelligible without God existing. Now you become the skeptic to them and back them up by asking question after question until they come to absurdity. Now, what most informed atheists will do, because if we're specifically dealing with an atheist here, obviously they don't believe in God, 
what they will do at this point is simply say, I don't know, and you don't know either. And that's where you got to get sassy with them. How do you know you don't know? How do you know you're here? How do you know you're not in the matrix? You lead them down the road of absurdity. Don't you have to be an I first to know anything? Alex Rosenberg says you're not even an I. He doesn't even think you exist. Remember I showed you that and, uh, and I put that up in our notes and I'll show you it right here as well. Into our 301 class notes, Rosenberg denies that you're even an I, that you even exist. Let me show you his quote from his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality. The self, the person, the I inside the body is an illusion along with all others, all those others. That means that even if there was a loophole in Epicurus's argument that death is something you shouldn't worry about, science still backs him up. There isn't really any you or me or him or her to worry about after death, post-death harm, boring, endless post-death existence or anything else. So here, to get out of acknowledging anything possibly true about the soul and the afterlife, he has basically denied that he himself even exists. Now, if you are arguing in a book about a guide to reality, and you've just told me you don't really exist, is that absurd or what? So show them their absurdity. Show them how absurd that is. Who's talking to me then? Chemicals? Hello, chemicals. Hello. Where did chemical? And then, and then it's like, where did chemicals come from? Well, you know, you just back them up. Where did that come from? And then what do they try to do? Well, I don't have to explain it. Yes, you do. If the ball is the size of a marble, you do. You explain everything else. If, if you saw, a, 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 you know, a dog laying at the front of your door, you're going to explain where the dog came from. Where did it come from? Somewhere down the road. Oh, it's this kind of dog. You know, what about humans? Where do they come from? What about a universe? Where did it come from? Right? Let me give you a few more transcendental arguments. Uh, this is a, a little bit longer one that he gave. And so this is um, basically frames step by step, and he'll give more as the book goes on. But this is basically frames way of saying how he would use the tag argument from personhood. And that is God is the source of all personality. So now watch how he would use it in a practical discussion. Premise one. The universe is either ultimately personal or ultimately impersonal. Now, this is what I was talking about before, and I might have said it here, but I know I've said it when I, I don't know if I said it here, but I know I've said it preaching, that if God is like, if there were a God like the force of Star Wars, we would be greater than that God because we have personality. You guys remember, remember me saying that either in church or here? Can't remember if I said it here, but I know I've said it in church. And so this is kind of his argument, like if you can be a person and make decisions, that's already an evidence for God. And God just can't be electricity then because you would be greater than that God because you would have a mind and a will and emotions, et cetera. Okay, premise one, the universe is either ultimately personal or ultimately impersonal. Premise two, if it is ultimately impersonal, it cannot justify rational discourse, including whatever you may be saying to me. <laughs> So if there is not a mind behind our minds, you can't justify any rational discourse like the one we're having right now. Premise three, therefore, if you want to carry on a rational discourse, you must presuppose that the universe is ultimately personal. There's a mind behind the universe. It's intelligent. That's why there's laws of the universe. That's why there's laws of logic. That's why there's mathematics. So before we go on, would you at least admit that we're persons 
and that we couldn't have a discussion unless there was a mind greater than our mind that framed what we call logic and science and, you know, uniformity of nature. That's why I don't think you're going to turn into a unicorn in the next second. Okay, if they agree to that, then you keep going. Only the Bible and the views derived from the Bible contain a consistently personalistic account of the world. So we can show them in the Bible. Look at how our God creates us in his image. See, he makes us in his in his image to have a mind, to have free will, to have emotions, and, and then we sin, and that's why there's now evil in the world. You see how the world makes sense through the Bible, and this Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's self-attesting. Even as we're speaking it, the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, is going to use it and start convicting them, right? Now you have a conclusion. Therefore, we should give careful consideration to the Bible and assess its truth on the assumptions that a personal God may have inspired it. And I would take out may and says, have inspired it. Take out the may. Say, let's look at this because God inspired it. And then what's the application? Let's pray that God's spirit would open your blinded eyes to the truth. So that's his way in the book of just helping you make it a common, a basic conversation in common everyday situations. Now, here are the three that I gave you to look over uh, in the previous week. Here's my argument from mind. Your mind is needed to uh, for everything you do, should say for everything you do. Premise one, to deny your non-material mind with your non-material mind is absurd. So for Alex Rosenberg to say there's no I, but he's writing a book with the letter I in it all the way up until that point is absurd. And we know the eye is not a brain because we don't find the eye in the organ of the brain. So it must be non-material. So show me your eye if you're not material. And he says, well, I don't have an eye. Well, who just said that then? (laughs) Do you guys get it? This is a good argument, okay? Premise two, to understand absurdity is evidence of your non-material mind. Okay, where are the laws of logic? Show me that under a microscope. But somehow you understand absurdity. You know that A can't be B. If A and B have different properties, that's the law of non-contradiction. So where is that law? Where did that go? Is it floating around here? Is there, like I said, the Sesame Street LAW law walking around? So just the fact you understood that. You understood absurdity. You understand foolishness. And you're not a brain because I can't find you in your brain. Therefore, your non-material mind exists. Genesis 2, 7, we were made in the image of God. Boom. That's how I bring it up, scripture. I always want to tie the actual scripture to it, okay? The next one, from Warrant, and this is where we get from Alvin Plantinga, a great Christian philosopher, won the Templeton Award uh, this year, just one of the greatest guys that we have. He's amazing, 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 amazing. And so you can get his book on warrants. You can get naturalism as evidence against or evolution is against naturalism. Basically, if you evolved from a monkey, how can you trust your mind, a monkey's mind? Very similar to the thing that John Lennox was talking about. A lot of those guys get their ideas from Plantinga. And this is God is the reason for warrant justification for proper function and true belief. So premise one, warrant entails proper function. So how can I be warranted or justified in any belief I have unless I have proper function of my mental capacities? I wouldn't know I was insane if I was insane. And if I lived in a world of insanity, how would I know I wasn't insane? We wouldn't know. You You wouldn't know if you're in the matrix right now. So to know anything, things have to proper function. Uh, proper 
uh, and a, they have to have proper function. Premise two, God is the ground for proper function. He's the only thing that can stop us from an infinite regress and say, yes, your brain's operating correctly. Yes, nature is operating correctly. You're not in the matrix. I told, I'm telling you, you're not in the matrix, right? And then the conclusion is, therefore, without God, there can be no proper function. Now, this is honestly, just like you've seen in the videos, well, you'll see people go. They'll be like, okay, then there's no proper function. And it's like, you, you are a fool. You just gave up all justified knowledge so you could deny God. Where do we go back from that? And right there and then, where do you go? You go to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and what do you tell them? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against you, your godlessness, your wickedness, because you suppress the truth in your wickedness. Verse 19, since what is known, since what may, may be known about God is plain to you, because God has made it plain to you, the very fact we're having this conversation, but now you're denying it. So now you're going to say, we can't know anything. And how do you know you can't know anything? Well, I, you know, I just know I know I can't know anything. Well, then you just contradicted yourself again. Do you know you're contradicting yourself? Yes. Do you want to stop contradicting yourself? No. Why? Because if I stop contradicting myself, I'm going to have to acknowledge a God that exists. Conclusion number two, therefore, if you have warrant for any belief, because of proper function, God exists. If you know that you're thinking right now, God exists. If you know you're sitting in a chair right now, God exists. If you can differentiate between truth and error, God exists. If you can do two plus two is four, God exists. Anything you know to be true, God exists. Last one, from preconditions, tag from preconditions. God is the precondition for everything. Premise one, God is the precondition for X. Premise two, X exists, therefore God exists. Put anything in X as you want. Evil exists, therefore God exists. The existence, and evil is not necessarily a thing, but we'll say we can see it in the world. Like darkness is not a thing, it's an absence of a thing. But uh, could you have darkness without light? No. And could you have uh, evil without good? No, you couldn't. It would be impossible. And so the only way we can measure darkness is by the absence of light. The only way that we can measure what is evil by the absence of good. So even when people try to use evil as an argument of, against God, evil itself proves God because they know that something is not good. Not good. Not good is evil. It's good and not good, and not good leads to evil. And I know in the Bible it says good and evil, but we have to understand that the only reason there could ever be an evil is because there's a good, right? And uh, to put it all together, Frame now says, here's what you want to do when you're doing presuppositional apologetics, having presuppositions, attacking those of others, demolishing the arguments, when you're wanting to use transcendental arguments, here's kind of like how you want to go about it. You want to have a clear understanding of where your loyalties lie and how they affect your epistemology. Always remember, you're a Christian arguing from the basis of Scripture. Number two, you've got to determine to use the Scripture without compromise in a winsome way and not trying to be offensive. With You know what I'm saying? Winsomeness and it's full. Oh, excuse me. So you want to be winsomeness and offensive, but not a way that, that is uh, trying to be rude. So do it without compromise in its full winsomeness and full offensiveness. So if it confronts in that way, don't be afraid to confront false beliefs, as we learned, destroying the arguments. Especially a determination to present God as a fully sovereign, 
as the source of all meaning, intelligibility, and rationality, as the ultimate authority for all human thought. Do that within your apologetics. And then lastly, an understanding of the unbeliever's knowledge of God. Always keep that in your mind. They know about God. They're resisting God. I just showed them the absurdity of this position, particularly, though not exclusively, as it affects their thinking. Okay? And he says, whether or not they call themselves presupposition or Vantillians, I'm happy to join with them if they can keep these things in mind. So let me go through the review questions quickly. Uh, to save us time, I'll answer them, and then we can really get into, the, into this. Who were Hume and Kant, and how did they differ? Hume was a philosopher that believed in evidentialism. Only empiricism and naturalism could prove anything to be true, and Kant believed in metaphysical grounding of rationality in the mind. And how did they differ? is that one said, I can know things outside of, uh, outside of my five senses, and that explains, that's Kant, explains why I have five senses. And the other one said, I don't have to explain why I have five senses. I just get to judge everything by it. What did Van Til contribute to Christian apologetics? He took the ideas of Kant based in Scripture and said, the only reason why we can know everything logically is because the Logos created us in his image. Um, and that's where we get presuppositional apologetics, and the transcendental argument for God. What does transcendental mean? Transcending the, the transcending the natural world, looking into the spiritual world, looking into the basis of all reality. How it applies to presuppositional apologetics is we're going to attack the presuppositions that they have, which, by the way, are transcendental too. I don't know is a transcendental argument. You don't know. It's not a physical thing we can look at right now. And then they use logic as well. So we're going to find out where their reason came from, where the eye is within their brain somewhere, and we're going to show them that it only works from the transcendental uh, perspective of God in the Bible. What are the three main parts of TAG? Uh, basically, the three things that you want to have in the, uh, the transcendental argument is uh, the logic and rationality, the morality and value and the science and uniformity come from God. So those, those are going to make like your really good arguments. Number five, describe what the phrase, the impossibility of the contrary means. Also add absurdum or uh, the infinite regress. You're going to show people that to deny our points leads to absurdity. And it's impossible to deny these points and actually be in this conversation. It's like sawing off the limb you're, you're sitting on. And give an example of a tag, you've just heard a bunch of them. And then lastly, describes, frames five main parts of presuppositional apologetics. It's actually four. I'll fix that here in just a minute. And it's basically uh, understanding where your loyalties lie, use the scripture without compromise, make God the sovereign God of all creation, in him and through him are all things. And then lastly, keep in mind that people have no excuse for saying the foolish things they're saying because God has already revealed it to them and that's how they know what they know. So that's the argument, the transcendental argument. We have plenty of time now to get into discussion and um, start to answer some of the questions that you guys may have. I see that Daryl put up a Emmanuel Kant article Daryl, did you see if they said he was a Christian or a non-Christian? I did. It said that he had Christian fundamental beliefs. Okay. So he was probably what we might call like a liberal Christian or a Christian that kind of walked the fine line. We don't know if we'll see him in heaven, but uh, he certainly wasn't out to disprove Christianity or disprove Christ. 
And, and uh, sometimes you'll even see this now that uh, Christians will believe like in theistic evolution. Doesn't mean they can't go to heaven. It just means they're wrong. Other times you'll see Christians that will even deny things like an immaterial soul. The Seventh-day Adventists are like this, and some Christians are like this. The Seventh-day Adventists is a cult for other reasons. But uh, the idea is that God made us attached to the body as a soul. So if your body is dead, you sleep until resurrection and then come back with it. So you were never meant to be a disembodied soul. Uh, and they could still go to heaven, obviously. But the problem with that is, is that there are souls in heaven around the throne right now and a whole lot of stuff going on there. And they have to deny that and call that all um, parabolic, parabolic, which is silly, because then it would be a parable within a parable. Because you remember when Jesus tells a parable about Abraham and the beggar, uh, you know, uh, and then he's there and, 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 they're, and they're talking and all of this. And it's like, well, hold on. It's like, if that's not really true, then why is Jesus telling it? Because when he told the story of the good Samaritan going down the road of Jericho, there's a, there's a place called Samaria. There's a, there's a road to Jericho. There's robbers. And so he actually tells a story about people being in this place and living onward. And so, uh, yeah, so he's probably on the liberal side. All right, let's get into it. Starting with Daryl, any questions or comments? Good, sir. Yes. Uh, what would, how would I respond to someone uh, who says that essentially uh, it all boils down to belief? Well, that's what we remember at the beginning. We talked about the accusation of fideism. Right. That is the accusation. They're saying you just are having faith in something you can't see. And we're saying, no, no, no. We have reasonable faith. We have evidence that points out our faith being true. I don't have to prove it any more than what it's been proven, but I can give you proof. The first one is the impossibility of the contrary. And dude, that is not a position of faith. Do you have to have faith to believe that I can speak a word of English, even though I've just told you, I don't know how to speak a word of English? Now, you might say, well, I actually heard you speak a word of English. But my thing is, when we talk about God, how did you do anything here? That is the proof that God exists. To say there's no God is to deny that you could do anything you just did, thinking. So they say, you're just having faith. No, I have an argument based on the truth of God's word and logic. And they're like, prove it. You just did by talking to me. They say, well, no, no, I did. I'm like, no, because to say there is no God and you just talk to me, it's impossible. That, that, that's, that's add a reduction to infinite regress. You cannot be talking to me intelligibly right now if the world is unintelligible or impersonal. So I'm not just having blind faith. We are experiencing it. That, that's where you got to go back to Romans 118 as well, Daryl. Look at what it says. For since the creation of the world, or rather 120, of Romans, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being watched, come on, you guys are getting it now. I feel the Holy Ghost up in this Pentecostal apologetic class. Being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Let me put this on full screen so everybody can see this and get the shikaboomba with me here. 
because that is so true. This is not blind faith. This is reasonable faith. This is placing our faith on the trustworthiness of God, okay? Let me show you this here. What does it say? It's clearly seen. And how was it clearly seen? In all of creation. It's right in front of them. Do you see why we're now saying presuppositional apologetics is not just from Kant, because all truth comes from God. Okay, let me back up and say this. Okay, let me just back up and say this. Okay. When Einstein discovered um, MC squared, E equals MC squared, okay? Or when Newton discovered gravity, did those guys invent gravity and the truth they found, or was that created already by God? It's created by God. When Kant moved the ball down the road after Hume was attacking everybody who had just faith in things, and Kant says, well, no, we actually just don't have faith in things when it comes to God. We actually have some evidence, but it's metaphysical as evidence. It's transcendental evidence, and it's actually the only evidence that explains everything else. Does Kant get the credit for that, or is God, the eternal logos, the eternal word, get the credit for that, right? So when we're saying it's clearly seen, we're literally saying it's clearly seen because you see mathematics work, because you see the laws of nature work, because, you, you know, that is evidence for God. Boom. And it's not just clearly seen. It's actually understood. It's understood. They understand it because they know that they couldn't have come from nothing. And every argument that comes against the Christian position that God said it, bang, it happened, we're made in his image, that's why we're personal beings. Anything that comes against that is not science, that's irrationality. Everything science proves, proves our point. Proves the point, not based on uh, blind faith, but on what we see faith, on what we see has order. Where did order come from? Clearly seen. There's order, but it's not ordering itself. Must be something ordering it that I don't see. I understand. Well, how did I understand anything? Well, I must have a thinker inside this organ, but I don't see it, but I understand it. I must have a mind or I must have a soul. I must have something that's not an organ. Where did that come from? A mind, a soul that's divine, something that creates. Oh, I was made in his image. The Bible now says I was made in his image. Not blind faith, reasonable faith. Does that help, Daryl? Amen. Yes, it does. Uh, is right, right before you said the impossibility of the contrary, I, I, I immediately after I asked the question, that's, that's exactly what I thought about. And everything was pretty much uh, hit the nail on the head. Yep. Amen. Amen. And yeah, and guys, just because I'm fired up, don't feel like you can't come back. Please don't just be convinced because I'm fired up and emotional. Uh, please come back with things that you may have in your heart that are questions, because I, I even put that up a few days ago on Facebook. Try to let it convince you by you trying to disprove it. Let's never force ourselves to believe things that we really don't understand. Uh, the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Uh, the Bible doesn't ask us to turn off our brain when we talk about God and the things of this world. As a matter of fact, he told us to love him. 
with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, like we said before, Abraham trusted God when he didn't see or comprehend all the details in front of him, but that still wasn't a blind faith. He was trusting a God that had already shown himself to be trustworthy. So just because I don't know why this child dies or this thing happened in my life, I don't understand like every minute detail, but I understand the big plan. God's in charge. Evil is here. He uses it for good. It all works out for me in the end. Okay. You see, those minute details only are not known because the Bible says he's saving things for certain times. And um, my life is not based on the I don't knows. It's based on the what I do knows. I do know. And I find out more and more over time the things that I don't know, like why did my sister die drinking and driving and all these other alcoholics not die? I begin to think like it's not important anyway from my perspective because I, I am not God in control of all this thing, you know, all of these things. It almost reminds me of uh, Bruce Almighty when Jim Carrey, you know, supposedly given now the, the role of being God. And now he goes to the prayer request uh, thing on his email and he gets flooded with all these emails. And then he begins to realize like, okay, uh, I'm not infinite, but I'm trying to be in a complaint to an infinite God. You know, I'm not all knowing, but I'm going to complain. And it's almost like God's way of saying like, I know more than you and I handle this. And so let's trust the God that we already know is trustworthy from what we see and understand with the things that we don't see or maybe don't understand in those small, in those small things. Because that's part of what he said was a part of our curse, was to be separated from him now. What, a distance, a, a, um, a, as it were, a valley of a shadow of death. But we need not fear because he is with us. So I often think that Psalms 23 describes life. Like I go, you guys probably have heard me say something about Psalms 23 almost in every message I've ever preached. Because I just think it describes life. And I believe the valley of the shadow of death is not when you're just dying and you're now in a valley, but in life, it's a valley because you see death. When I ride my bike down the highway, I see all the death of these animals, these beautiful animals, some not so beautiful. I saw a possum today. I saw a bird. I actually saw one of my neighbors picking up a bird because it must got hit by a car and its wings were flapping. We had a baby bird die in our backyard because it uh, fell out of its nest. And uh, turtles get run over. I see their, their, their squish. I ran over a chipmunk the other day. He was running back and forth, and he just got caught under my tire. Well, dude, we're in the land of death. These animals used to be free to live without fear of death. We used to be free. But now we have to live in a world of shadows. Call the world we live in the shadow land. And so what we do see and what we do understand is that there is a God and there's no way around it. And our creator made himself known primarily through Jesus Christ. In the, in the Bible says in Hebrews, he did it through the prophets. So all these prophets knew uh, in part, but the fullness came, it says, now through the Son, God has spoken. And so now humanity is without any excuse. And then, he's, and then the Son says, I'm going away, and it's good because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to convict the whole world of sin, righteousness, judgment. Boom, it's happening right now. And these arguments are to help us preach the gospel. Okay, let's go to Joe B. With his scholar glasses on, what's up, baby? Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, so uh, I was thinking when you, because uh, the process seems like this. So you, you know, you're speaking to an atheist. Um, 
and they're like, oh, you know, I, I you can't know, you won't know, because I've I faced that lots of times. Uh, they're like, oh, you, you don't know either. And I'm like, yeah, I, I do know. And then when you get them to that point of like infinite regress, you called it, uh, and they're like, dang, like now they have that, that, that choice to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to become an agnostic right now and say there's a possibility of a God. And then, or you get them to that point where it's like nothing matters, everything, uh, everything's absurd, you know, uh, and just uh, it doesn't matter. Like almost like Rosenberg. Um, could you, in a sense, when you get them to that absurdity uh, in their thinking, could you almost use like a scientific method type of thing where it's like, okay, dude, if you really believe like this, other people believe like this. And if it was true, then why can't you uh, see that in people's lives? Like when I look at your life, I don't really see uh, what you're saying. Like you don't act like you live in the matrix. You don't act like you're, you're doing yep. this. Then you can almost kind of like catch them in their own lie. Yeah. Like, is, 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 is that like the process? Yeah. And I hope that now you guys can see we do use evidences. Like I'm going to use evidence of Jesus raising from the dead. I'm going to use evidence that we explain everything in science, but we can't explain science itself. So that should show us we need another evidence. Um, But the idea is that, like how you said, we show them first, they cannot make these absolute statements. Otherwise, they turn to absurdity. And if they come into that place, which I often do see them do, they humble themselves to say, well, I don't know. And then maybe they'll be sassy and say, you don't know either. Well, then you could use 101 different evidences now because you've set them up to the place where you don't know. But let me prove to you I do know. I'll show you a whole bunch of things I know. I know why math works. I know why I live by the laws of the land because it matters. I know why I do moral things. We haven't brought that up yet. But we could easily make that argument. Just uh, take out my ex and you guys can use it for, for your friends tomorrow at work. It's so, it's so simple. Uh, and I'll put up the screen right here. And Joby, don't, don't uh, come off yet because I, I want to make sure this makes sense to you because I'll use your thing as an example. But here's how I would do proof right from uh, morality. I would say God is the precondition for morality. Morality exists. Therefore, God exists. And then if they go... Uh, well, I don't think we need God for morality. Well, tell me what what uh, what you do for morality. Well, I just kind of do whatever feels right. Well, is what if you feel it's right to do another Holocaust? Oh, no, I wouldn't do that. I mean, just as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, who told you it doesn't have to hurt anybody else? Why couldn't the next guy do a Holocaust then? So you're now you're showing them evidence through this argument as well. And, and you're, you know, it, evidence is presuppositional too. Transcendental argument, let's put it this way. Van Til believed that the transcendental argument was the greatest proof for God to the non-believer, like how we just showed in Romans 1.20. He, he felt that this explained it, that they could see and understand. So that is actually proof itself, by the way. But then you can prove it, like you said, the absurdity of the contrary. Well, if you don't have an absolute standard for morality, then anybody can do whatever they want, and you can't say anything about it. So you don't live like that. You live like it actually matters how you treat people. Well, where did that come from? Because I can show you about three videos on Facebook right now of alligators eating their baby alligators or other alligators. Why can't we cannibalize each other? You don't live like that. You believe that human life is valuable. And you believe that if somebody, you know, everybody thinks, as I said before, like with C.S. Lewis says, everybody thinks 
and this kind of mindset mindset that um, ethics are uh, subjective, your own opinion. You can do really whatever you want until somebody steps on their foot on the bus. And then now they're like, I got objective morality. I know something is wrong. That is wrong. Well, without God, there's no pre- there's no way it could be wrong. Because without God, it's just your opinion. And once again, that's what moral, uh, moral relativism, and that's what Rosenberg asserts. And then you could just say not only laws of morality, you could say laws of logic. Could, could A be B? If A and B have different properties, why not? What grounds that? Well, it's just this way it is. Well, who's the one using blind faith now? Throw that right back at him. Well, who's the one having blind faith? I'm not saying it just is the way it is. I give you the answer, God. Well, I don't know. I'm telling you we do know. Sounds like you're rebellious against the gods you already know. Hey. Joe B., what do you think about that, baby? I thought it was, uh, it was amazing. It makes Come a lot on. of sense. It's, it's really clear, uh, especially the way uh, you broke it down with the X. Like, even though I don't like math, I, I think <laughs> it's plain and simple. Like, uh, I think it's called the mo- modus ponus or whatever. Yeah, where it's like, yeah, yeah like uh, – I think when you say, you know, it, like the if if this is true, then that is true. That kind of yeah. that kind of that kind of made it even more simple for me. I kind of tried it a little bit uh, this Saturday um, yeah. uh, with math, but and it worked. Like they were like, oh, and they were like, well, man, you're right. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm like, well, these guys were actually like half smart. They would have been like, yeah. yo, dude, what are you talking about? So I I can, can you maybe show it with math? Because I know you played a video for it, but I mean, like in a practical sense, like could I maybe uh, could you like a like a maybe uh, approach one of us and then be like, sure. oh, you don't have any foundation for math, and then I'm gonna be like, what do you mean? Because I I want to see how you do it. Sure. With math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, we'll just do the interaction right now, the role play. So I'm coming to you. We're on the college campus, maybe at Wright College. We're talking a little bit. You say that uh, you don't really believe in God. And then I'm going to say, well, uh, and you say you believe in science. And, you know, and then I'll say, what do you believe in? Do you believe in the predictability and the um, the predictability? Let me just get this word in my mind because I want to have it. The accuracy of math. Like math can predict things like where the stars are going to be tomorrow and, and it's accurate. Yeah, I do. Okay. Where does that come from? Uh, that comes from, uh, you know, like, that's a good one. I was just like, because they were like. <laughs> Hold on, let's just pause for a second. I don't mind role playing, but I'm trying to, like, figure out, like, how do you not know this already? So maybe I'm not understanding your no. argument, but here, it's literally the- that simple. Where okay. does math come from? It Why does the- math work? But then they were like, oh, dude, because uh, one plus one, and here, there's two fingers now. And I was like, hmm, that's true. And then I kind of yeah. just fumble for it a little bit. Like, I don't know. I think God kind of like literally gave me an assist right there, spoke some wisdom to me, and I was able to like answer that. But I didn't was- say you couldn't do math. You just showed me it worked. I'm asking you why it works. Mm, okay. Sure. Why Why does math work? Why do okay. you have a brain to understand math? Do dogs why? understand math? Why is I'm it not pra- talking about, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about training the dog. I'm talking about do, does a dog understand math? And if they say, well, computers can do math, I'm saying computers are like dogs. They can be trained to do things, but they don't understand them. You understand math. You have a ability to understand it in your mind right now. How can you do that? And why does it work? Okay. 
Yeah, that's super clear now. Super yeah, clear. and so that that's what it is. It's you see, we create things like computers that can imitate um, what we would call like uh, operational, like math and and things like that. But that doesn't mean they comprehend it in a conscious way. We are not the computer. And there's a real in-depth argument that I just heard today that even if they said that a computer was conscious, it would still be imitating consciousness. And and let me just say this real quick. The argument will help. So imagine if um, I'm in an experiment and they give me a symbol that looks like this. And they say, every time you get a symbol that looks like this, we want you to give us a symbol that looks uh, like this. And they actually did the example with Chinese. So I just kind of did the, uh, the symbol for pi. But every time they, they give you a symbol like this, we want you to give us a symbol that looks like this, a circle with you know a line going through it. So they hand me this, I hand them this. Now let's just say they tell me how to do a bunch of random, I mean, a bunch of uh, actions to everything they're doing. So they say, well, when we give you another object, you give us this object. When we give you this, we give you that, we give you this, we give you that. Let's say at that point, someone comes along and says, you know what you're doing? I say, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm just doing what they showed me to do. And they say, you are now giving us the codes for nuclear bombs. You know, you, you have just responded back and forth to these codes to launch nuclear weapons. I would have no idea what I just did. All I'm doing is what someone else told me to do in this, in this kind of way. And so we could program computers to act certain ways, and we could comp- program animals to act in certain ways, but they have no understanding of it. They have no ability to operate with it and to, uh, to really predict with it. And so they're just kind of regurgitating formulas that we've given to them. And computers can do that very, very fast. You know, like computers can, can do math fast and they can project images, but that doesn't mean they are seeing and interacting with images. Like my camera can see an image, but that doesn't mean it's interacting with the image the way I'm interacting with it. And the calculator can do that, this and the, that, and the, this and the, that, but it's not actually interacting with the math. Is that deep? So just because he interacted with math and he understands it, it, it's bigger than just interacting. He understands it. And then we just want to say, why does it work? And then to move it one step forward, why does it work in predictability towards a universe? So it's not just I have one and I do one and I go like this. How did they find the Higgs boson particle first in math before they could discover it with the Hydron Collider? You know, and they actually discovered this particle in math like, oh, man, this particle should be there if we can get the science to, uh, to get the equipment to really produce this thing, you know, whatever they do with these particles, we'll see another particle there. Or sometimes they'll, they'll look at these, uh, these uh, planets going around stars and stuff, and we can't even see them with the microscope, but all we can see is certain uh, changes like redshift or different things that's happening with light. And they start doing all this math and they're like, oh, there should be a planet there. And then eventually, like, we get a big enough telescope and we go, oh, there's a planet there because now we could see it rotating. We see it physically rotating, but we understood it was already there based upon a cycle of the way the light was reflecting. And we did math and we could we could point out where it should be. And, oh, now we can see it there with the Hubble. Oh, there's yeah, there's planets around those stars now. So math is not just a as some people call a useful fiction. The, the most, as, as Einstein said, the most 
incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible and, and, ma and math is the language of the universe. And that's where I would just tell them what I told them right now. And I would say that, you know, these amazing physicists say that God's a mathematician, even though sometimes they may say that in a lowercase g, it's just there's no way to say it any other way. And, and the, in this debate that I was listening to, I even had the guy, send, I asked him to send me his notes and he's going to send them to me. He had so many of these, those quotes from these big hitters and even atheism. Uh, you know, they're saying there's no way to get mind from matter. And there's no way to have predictability with math in the universe from from organs made of mushy material, you know. So sadly, even an atheist had a near-death experience one time and wrote about it and said, I'll still be an atheist. Because why do people do that? Well, why did Adam and Eve sin after they saw God, seeing God, having the knowledge of God, that still doesn't make you want to serve God. The Bible says that's not the problem. The problem isn't they don't have enough evidence. And I think that's where you guys, I don't want to beat you up on this too much. Um, uh, uh, Joby, I don't want to beat you up on this too much. But even that question, I know it was a practical question. I want to get back to you because I want to make sure I answered it. But it's it's still not to me, like some of you guys are getting it fully because it's not like we're trying to give them enough evidence to really believe in God. They already have enough evidence to believe in God. We're just showing them the God they're suppressing. Does that make sense, Joe B? And then help me if I've answered your question there. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And it, it kind of just shows um, the heart behind this too. Yeah. Like we're not presenting new stuff. We're just showing them the stuff that they've overlooked and kind of just... That's it. Like, you know, this yeah. is, if you want proof, they'll just look around here and here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So the question once, and just to say it even a simpler way is what are the preconditions? Let me, you know what, this is good. Let me give it to you in an argumentative uh, form, my brother. And then that way you can maybe remember it a little bit easier. Let's go to the precondition argument. Okay. God is the precondition for mathematics. Mathematics, let's not say exists. Because we don't believe, like, once again, Sesame Street, there's this thing called two, and he walks around and says, hi, everybody, I'm the number two. That's actually um, Platonism, to believe that actually non-material objects exist outside of God. So there's, like, literally all of these non-material numbers that exist, all of these non-material laws that exist outside of God. And that's a whole nother discussion, but obviously that makes no sense from a Christian worldview because in him and through him are all things. John one, three, all things that were made have been made by him. Nothing is that hasn't been made by him. Right? So let's just say math is useful in the real world or math has real world applications. So God is the precondition for math. Math has real world applications and applicability Therefore, God exists. So they're going to believe premise two, right? That math has real world applicability. Math works. So you can just say math works. And so now give me the precondition for math. And if they just go, well, two plus two, here we go. Okay, how did you do that? Well, because I have a brain and I could do that. Okay, where'd your brain come from? And you can just back them up simply like that. That's probably an easier way to do it. But like I said, you can use a lot of the evidence, like we said, through physics and his Higgs boson particle, all of those neat things that they discover with math and be like, how did they do that? And then you can get into the mind issue. 
A brain understands math? It really does? Well, show me in your brain where you do math. Oh, yeah, there's this part that lights up when I do it in an MRI scan. Okay, so where's the number two in there? Oh, it's a mental state. Okay, well, what's a mental state got to do with the number two? Can I see the number two in your mental state? No? Well, what's the precondition for mental states then? You know, I mean, you can go 100 different directions, 100 different evidences. Remember, we'll use evidences, but we're always going to do it from our perspective with the Bible being with God in the Bible. And uh, when we look at uh, like things like mental states and all of that, what we always want to point them back to is that God is the eternal logos. God is the eternal mind. And that's what uh, a frame used was the, and it may sound weird, like it even did for me, like out of all the angles he could have gone, like, why did he go like personal? Well, because he's talking to a person. And so if you're not a person, then that means there's no point in even talking to you. You're the kind of fool I should not answer because I will become like you, arguing with the guy who says, I'm not a person. Well, who just said I'm not a person? You know what I'm saying? You guys understand this. I mean, I don't want to, I'm going to stop in just a minute. But if they say, like Rosenberg, I am not a person, for you to argue with a person saying, I am not a person, will make you a fool like them. That's what the Bible says. Do not answer a fool in his folly. What kind of fool do we not answer in their folly? The one who says, I don't know a word of English. The one who says, my parents had no children that lived. The one who says that I'm not a person. Well, right there, we know we've gone nowhere. Okay, you can't argue with a fool like that. Just, okay, I'm going to pray for you. This is what the Bible says. Repent of your sins. Okay, and, and you may want to take a moment to try to say, do you understand the absurdity of what you just said? You're not a person. You know, okay. But let's say they go, well, I guess that kind of makes sense. I am a person. Well, then you just keep going through it. Okay, so you're a person, and that means you can now have rational discourse, right? Okay, well, since you can have rational discourse, that now means you're presupposing that the universe is ultimately personal. Oh, no, no, I'm just saying I'm personal. I'm not saying the whole universe has to have a person behind it. I'm just saying I'm personal. Okay, let's go back. Where did it come from then? If it doesn't come from another person we're going to get into the borrowing the book situation. Where do I get my mind from? Well, I got it from evolution. Where did evolution get it from? Okay, God. God says I got it from him because he's the ultimate personality. He's the ultimate person. He's the ultimate reason for personality, I would rather say, because he's tri-personal, right? Okay. Let's go to Rachy Rach. Does this make sense, sister? Yes, it does. Um, I think for me, the challenge is just training my mind to to think in those ways, you know, because a lot of times when I, you know, when we witness and stuff like that, I, I look at it for the face value. I look at what they're saying to me instead of what is the basis of why they're saying what they're saying, you know, yeah. and then combating that um, mindset. So um, I think that's um, the biggest challenge for me, but I think it's a good thing because um um, I want to be effective, you know, and Amen. I want people to really see, just like you were saying, the folly of what they're saying, you know, yeah. um, what they're believing. So, Amen. And, and let me just stay with you just for a moment, if I could. We um, did a lot of discussion here with the atheists, but remember, that's a small percentage of the world. Atheism is a very, very small percentage. The majority of people that we're going to meet, and especially in America, 80%, 70% now, 
are going to say they come from a Christian worldview or at least a Christian background, but may not have all of the biblical, um, all the biblical commands down, not living right. So how do I use this with them? Okay. So Rachel, this is how I would use it with them is with the one with Jesus that I um, formulate or for the triune God here. Here we go right up here. Okay. If Jesus rose from the dead, God is triune and known only through the Bible. Jesus did rise from the dead. Therefore, God is triune and known only through the Bible. As we talked a little bit about last week, I just want to remind you guys, and specifically with Rachel here, she's saying that. So we meet a person who says, I believe in God. So do we just throw away all of that we've learned? No. We now use that as a basis to teach them what they should be doing with that knowledge. So you believe in God. That's awesome. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. You might find most people say that. When I go to write college, and you, leave, you guys always leave so early. Don't leave early this time, okay, guys? Because I keep wanting to get you in discussions, because you, you're the only one that's witnessed with me the most besides Juan. Okay, Yuli? Are you with me there, Yuli? Okay, so don't leave quickly. Just I know you guys may have to go, but at least give me five minutes so I can give more personal application, because I see our time running out. But Yuli, when we went to write college, didn't most of the people grant us these two things they believed in God and they believed Jesus was the son of God. Uh, yeah, most of the time they did. Right. Most of the time. So in our culture, guys, we're just going to respond to where we're at. That's what they did. So what did I respond back to them was, okay, well, if he's risen from the dead, we need to now know him and obey what he's taught. So if they say, you know, let's just even say they go, I, he raised from the dead, okay? We, we didn't have to go down that. All now I have to do is this conclusion and say, know him from the Bible. And when they say, uh, I don't know if I believe the Bible. Well, did Jesus raise from the dead? Yeah, well, Jesus said that he was give us the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. Don't you believe he's trustworthy? Yeah, but it's a book written by men. Yeah, men write math books and it's still true. Couldn't God use men to write something true? You're a man. You're a woman. Don't you write stuff that's true? Have you ever wrote a, a text to somebody that says, I love you? Is that true? So God used men to write stuff that's true. What about this is not true? Put them on the spot. And, I, and you guys can see like my engagement on, on, at Ohio Park. Well, I don't believe in hell. Well, why don't you believe in hell? Well, I think that it's unfair that you live a short life and get punished for eternity. All I had to do was, you know, Go to the Bible and say, God's an eternal God. You sin against him, you have an eternal consequence. Boom. I said, you sin against a man, you have to have the eye for the eye. You know, justice works like that. You steal the car, you pay back the car. You take a life, you do life in prison. Well, how do you serve out your time when you sin against an eternal God, a God that has no beginning or end? Now you're going to suffer from the time of your existence without end. See, all I had to do was help him to do that. And these, and we'll get into more of these arguments, but they're continually just questioning our scriptures. And what we're going to do is we're going to give them the best answer from our scriptures, knowing that the God of the Bible is speaking to them from the Holy Spirit and already convicting them that this is, this is real. This is the one that's been speaking to them in their dreams or talking to them in their conscience or using relatives or situations in their life. 
And, and we're going to show them that this is the God. Go back to Acts 17 with Mars Hill. This is the God you guys don't know, but you know you need it. The story of the unknown God is this real quickly in closing, that they had a disease and they were sacrificing to all their gods and the disease wasn't going away. And there was a real smart, smart guy that said, if we have sacrificed to these gods and they have not responded to us and we know there must be a God, and if, if he's anything like us and we're made in his image, he must be a good God that wants to help us because we see good days. Not every day is a day of sickness. Not every day is a day of disease. And so the, the, the wise man said, and then he'll probably have mercy on us if we admit we don't know him and then sacrifice to him. So we're, we're going to say, we don't know who you are, but this is for you, the one that's good in control and that can help us. And they sacrifice to the unknown God and the disease, the, the thing dissipates. That was why it was there. Paul knew that. And then he quotes that guy, I believe it was the actual guy he quotes. It says, in him we live and move and have our being. I believe that's the same guy with the tradition where it came from, the unknown God. The story was about that guy, the wise man. And so Paul goes, that God you didn't know, but you knew was like this, and it spoke to your heart, and it had all, he had all of these qualities, I'm revealing them to you now. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so never doubt that someone can change within moments. I mean, I'm coming at my mom with all of these arguments, but remember, God is real. God is speaking to me. I don't need more evidence to know he's real. I just need the word. I need to believe, right? And so my mom just rebukes that comes against it with the word of God from the presupposition of truth, and now it's my time of salvation. And that's what you want to do. You want to remove their arguments. You want to bring it back to the point of who God is and show them that anything else leads to absurdity. Does that make sense, Rachel? Yes, thank you. Amen. Wonderful. Would you close us out in prayer? And Ulysses, please stay back because I want you to get me, uh, help me with some backup. Okay, go ahead, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, Father, we want to thank you so much for this time, Lord, of, of learning more about you, Father God, and getting these practical um, tips, Lord Jesus, and discussions that we can use in our in our everyday life, God. So we just ask that they would soak in, God, that we would um, we would use it, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you continue to bless us, God, as we um, learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.